Welcome to Conversations with Q. I'm Lucia, Q's Marketing Director, and every week I have a chat with a marketer or entrepreneur from the tech space to get to the bottom of a bunch of things that are probably fascinating you, inspiring you, or downright puzzling you right now. Think how to make decisions about your career, what it actually takes to build a successful startup, marketing tactics you should and shouldn't bother with, the dark side of hustle culture, equality in the tech industry, and more. Today's guest is digital marketing specialist and entrepreneur, Ross Simmons. I've been following Ross's work for a while, both on his personal blog and YouTube videos and at his content marketing agency, Foundation Inc. And he somehow has this knack for creating content around the exact topics I want to read about. So I was really grateful to have the opportunity to find out how he does it. In this interview, Ross told me why he's always wanted to work for himself and how he made that dream possible his advice for budding marketers looking to build a successful career, the reason he doesn't track his employees' hours, the inspiration behind the content he creates, and how he thinks brands should handle creating socially conscious marketing campaigns. So one question that I like to ask people at the beginning of this show is as a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? Great question. So when I was a kid, very young age, I wanted to be a wrestler. Um, okay. If I were to take you back to like great primary, my mom has a book where she used to write down everything that we wanted to be well, each year. And I think the earliest oh. memory that I have was in great primary when I wanted to be a, a wrestler in the WWF. Oh, that's so cool. That's a really nice idea that your mom had. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty cool. She has like a record of everything that we wanted to be through it every year, um, leading into about grade seven. I can imagine there were quite a few career plans in there across the years. <laughs> yeah, it definitely changed every year. And funny enough, none of them line up with what I do now. But uh, it was, it's always interesting to look back and see all the, the early dreams of uh, baby Ross. Yeah, of course. So, um moving on to your actual career now I know that you studied business communications marketing and HR at university so when did you kind of decide that you wanted to pursue marketing yeah so I would have probably been in high school um, when I started to realize that this marketing thing was something that was very interesting to me Uh, I watched a movie as a, a young kid in high school called boomerang uh, yeah. which was about a advertising executive uh, with Eddie Murphy in it. And it kind of was like an eye-opener to me that that was a potential career. So um, I signed up for marketing, and that was kind of uh, where I ended up positioning myself and focused on through my education. Uh, and then over time, it geared more towards the digital side when I realized that in university, I was learning nothing but billboards and radio and things that, I didn't really believe that the core was going to be the future. Uh, and a lot of my colleagues in school were learning this stuff and they were doing extremely well. But to me, uh, the real future lied in digital marketing and in social media and in uh, content. So what essentially turned out from there uh, was this realization that if I want to walk across that stage and get my degree and be actually a little bit different from everyone else, I need to start thinking differently about my own education and start investing myself doing my own side projects that would give me the ability to learn a little bit about 
AdWords, SEO, um, things of that nature. So uh, that's kind of the, the path that I took that led me into digital marketing. I started to write a blog through a university about fantasy football and fantasy sports. And then from there, it evolved into a, a marketing blog, which kind of started to really kick off and take me into the, the career that I have today. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you actually how relevant your degree was to your career now, because like you said, so much is digital now. And I kind of imagine that because the space is changing so rapidly, it's quite hard to kind of learn stuff that's actually going to stand you in good stead for a long term career. Yeah, I think the biggest lessons that I gained in university were less to do with marketing and more to do with uh, working with other people, how to collaborate with other people, um, how to manage team dynamics and group projects, uh, timelines, deadlines, those types of soft skills more than anything is what I was able to acquire at university. The marketing piece that gave me some of the fundamentals in terms of the language and understanding what people meant when they would talk about demand and supply. Um, the statistics classes gave me a bit of insight into the math, which would be required for analytics. But for the most part, it didn't go really deep into some of the theories and the philosophies that we use today. Okay. So you mentioned that you sort of started doing your own projects while you were at university, but once you graduated, what was the first job that you went into? So the first job uh, that I went into was a social media marketer for the CBC. And the CBC is a Canadian broadcast corporation. Uh, they represent um, kind of the public television um, group in Canada for TV. Um, okay. So I worked with them as the social media strategist. I launched their social media campaign throughout the Maritimes uh, when I was fresh out of university. Um, and then after that, I quickly left the CBC to kind of start my own thing. Um, not because it wasn't a great job and a great opportunity, but more because I always had this bug of wanting to be an entrepreneur and working for myself has always been mm. um, a passion of mine from the time I was a, a very young kid. So um, after working at the CBC and realizing I had skills that they would want, I assumed that other people would want those skills as well. So I started my first agency uh, shortly after that, that role. Okay. And so how did that agency go? It went well. Um, it made enough for me to kind of essentially establish myself in paid the bills as a 21, 22 year old. Uh, it wasn't making significant amount of cash, but it was doing enough to kind of get me by um, yeah. in those days. It was a, definitely the ramen noodles diet. It wasn't anything <laughs> extravagant by any means, um, but very shortly after running that company and learning a lot in the process, I was approached by a bigger agency and eventually joined them uh, to kind of assist with building their digital practice. And I did that for about a year and a half, maybe two years, um, I can't remember exactly. And then once I was able to use that experience to really learn how to run an agency, how to um, manage timelines, how to manage clients, I eventually uh, left that company, started Foundation Marketing, um, and I've been running Foundation ever since. Yeah, and you guys are doing such a great job at Foundation. Like, I'm loving all of the content you're putting out at the moment. Um, Thank you so much. I appreciate that. So, um, yeah, it sounds like you've probably got quite a lot of good advice you could give to someone looking to start a career in marketing. And, you know, you yourself have worked for yourself and also 
big agencies. So for someone that's just starting out, would you kind of recommend some working environments over others? For example, if they have the choice, should they work for themselves, a startup or a larger corporation? Which do you think is best and teaches you the most? I think when you're first starting out, it's very important that you don't um, necessarily rely solely on what you can learn from reading and trying to guess your way to success. I think mm-hmm. that joining another company, uh, whether it's a startup or whether it's an agency, I think the, the approach that you take for that first goal should be focused on optimizing for increasing your skill set. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunity to grow inside of an agency if you are in an agency that is actually giving you the ability to do more than just get people coffees, um, photocopy a few things here and there, and proofread documents. You need to go into an agency that's actually going to give you tasks where you're managing social media accounts, you're learning about SEO, and you're actually implementing things based off of that. You're given small media budgets that you can run A-B tests with. You have to actually create landing pages. All of those different things, if an agency offers you that ability to actually do things, then I think that that's a great starting point. One of the things I love about startups is that you have to do all the things. You have to learn how to do content marketing, how to do SEO, how to um, create a webinar uh, series, how to launch a podcast, how to get featured on product on all of those different things. So startups in the early days are a great place to actually learn. Um, because you have to put your hands in so many different areas and it gives you the ability to really establish a sense of a generalist, but also focus on something that is of interest to you. Uh, So I think that both of those present an opportunity. The key recommendation that I have is once you've established a role in a company, um, don't be afraid to use your spare time to also Focus on creating something in your spare time that will allow you to gain skills that you're not getting at your full-time job. So if you have gotten a job as an SEO manager or SEO marketer within an agency, use your spare time to run an Instagram account selling um, hair extensions or something that you decided to sell. Um, Come up with a product, sell it online, learn through what I would call a side hustle uh, to gain skills that aren't necessarily what you are gaining in your nine to five. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And I definitely agree with what you're saying about working at startups, because that's been my experience in my own career. And I didn't have any kind of, mar- I mean, I didn't really know I wanted to be a marketer. And so I hadn't really studied marketing, but in a startup, you're just thrown into it and you just have to kind of teach yourself on the spot which is for me a great way to learn Um, and that kind of falls in line with one of your blog posts actually t-shaped marketers here's what you evolve into next so you were looking at the kind of um, marketing models that people often refer to um, I think it yes the t-shaped model and saying that instead of focusing on all the kind of skills you can learn you should prioritize execution so could you just kind of expand a little bit like what you mean by that definitely so the the idea of the t-shaped marketer is a philosophy that i i truly love like i love the concept of the t-shaped marketer at its core where it focuses on the idea that people should have um a wide range of knowledge across a bunch of important topics related to marketing. So you should have a general idea in content, in paid, in social, in data, in PR, in community, and all of those different things. But in one of them, you need to go really deep. And that's where you have that that bottom of the T, 
where if you are focused on, let's say, um, social, you need to have expertise in Facebook management. You have to have expertise in Instagram marketing, in influencer management, in Twitter, all of these different things. That is what would be the, the line that goes through the middle of the T um, in theory. Okay. The challenge that I often see is that a lot of us spend so much time just learning about d content, paid, social, um, Instagram, and we just constantly are reading and reading and reading. We never actually do. And when we have that depth of knowledge without the actual expertise that is required um, to kind of have the, the soft skills in many ways, we miss out. So it's mm -hmm. important that we actually spend time gaining skills that allow you to take all of this knowledge and actually execute. And that's where the bottom of the eye comes in um, that I'm pushing for when I think about my hires, when I think about people who I love to work with, it's people who not only have knowledge, but they actually have the, the ability to do, um, the ability to pull up their sleeves, manage a, um, a timeline, the ability to pull up their sleeves and actually write a blog post instead of just knowing the theory around the importance of writing blog posts, uh, the ability to actually manage a content calendar, right? Like those are mm. some of those things that I feel like are oftentimes overlooked when we're thinking about a T-shaped marketer because we focus on gaining knowledge rather than gaining the actual um, ability to apply that knowledge to achieving outcomes. Sure. No, that makes perfect sense. And I guess, yeah, especially if you're working in a startup environment, it's that idea of kind of getting your hands dirty a bit sometimes and just getting stuck in, even if it's not like the most exciting job in the world, you know, all the tasks. Exactly. Yeah, like a lot of people love the idea of SEO and getting links and they can talk for hours about the yeah. idea of we need to get links. But not a lot of people are actually willing to put up their, pull up their sleeves and just spend time with their headphones in and doing the outreach and following up with people, doing the things that seem very uh, gritty and are a bit of a grind, but those are the things that actually will drive results. And it's just about consistency. And I think that's what's missing oftentimes with that T-shaped marketer. It's that a lot of people learn the theory, but they don't actually take the time to actually do. Sure. And so you mentioned a minute ago um, about some of the businesses you founded. So just so our listeners know what they are, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but we have Hustle and Grind, which is an e-commerce store for entrepreneurs, and Foundation Marketing, which is your B2B content agency. And you also yep. had a content marketing software company called Crate. So correct. you mentioned that you kind of have that entrepreneur bug, and I think that is something common for everyone who's started a business. So right. why do you think that you're the type of person that's suited to working for yourself rather than anyone else? And would you ever work for anyone else again? Yeah, so it's uh, there's tons more companies that I've had over okay. the years uh, that continue on this list from event companies to um, restaurant-related companies. I've had tons of different organizations, cleaning companies. I've had tons, and I still operate a oh. few others um, as well. And it really started for me back when I was a young kid again. Uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. He ran a paving company. And I loved the fact that he had complete control over his schedule. Okay. Um, I was so envious of the fact that I had to go to school every day from 7 until 3, whatever the hours were. But my grandfather had this flexibility in his schedule to do whatever he wanted every single day. Um, and that blew my mind. It just was a, an idea that escaped me and I didn't really understand it because my parents worked nine to five. Um, my dad would wake up at six. He'd go to work until three. My mom would do the same thing. Like it was a consistent 
um, hours that were dictated by uh, a company. So I was just blown away by the control that he had over his schedule, and I was always envious of it. Uh, and I realized as I grew older that the reason why he was able to do that was because he was an entrepreneur. So for me, um, the reason why I love entrepreneurship is because it, I believe it gives you the ability to have the most control over your own life. Uh, and it's also something that I believe a lot of organizations don't embrace this idea of empowering their employees to live life on their own terms. So that's one of the reasons why Foundation is a completely remote team, because I think that remote work arms people with the ability to really take ownership of their schedule, especially when you don't track hours and you actually just focus on results. So for me, our agency is different from most because we don't bill by the hour, we solely bill by the project. What that allows my team to have the flexibility to do is to go to do yoga at 4 p.m. or 10 a.m., it doesn't matter, um, and then get back to work whenever they really feel like it. And that's because similar to the way that I was inspired by my grandfather to have that flexibility with his, his schedule, um, I want my team and myself to have the flexibility to manage their own time on their own terms as well. Yes, completely agree that that's probably the best way to work and that's how we operate things at Q because I mean apart from anything everyone's so different like some people are night owls some people are early birds and it all comes down to just the way your body's set up really right so exactly. yeah it may it seems so kind of arbitrary to set like a nine to five working routine and just force people into a quite uncomfortable office somewhere right. and expect them to do their best work but I feel like what you said about um giving your employees that freedom and flexibility and you don't really care how many hours they work that is probably quite hard to do as a manager like have you ever run into any challenges with that um because I guess it's about building trust which can be hard right. to do yeah so for me um one of the I early on when I was first starting the company I had challenges um, around understanding what people would be doing, but it was simply due to a lack of transparency um, in the company. So we established um, more transparent guidelines around what it is that everyone is doing. We have a, a daily stand-up where everybody identifies what they've done um, yesterday, what they're doing today, what their number one priorities are, and if there's anything standing in their way. And that's something that is done every day consistently, and that opens our eyes to see what everybody is working on. In addition, we um, took this approach sort of from Noah Kagan, where he has a proactive uh, dashboard where people are able to each week identify what they've actually done, um, and it's simply updating a spreadsheet that says, these are the things that I was able to accomplish today mm -hmm. or this week. So. I don't have that problem today simply because we've put in place the systems to allow for um, radical transparency within the company where everyone can see what everyone is doing. Um, and I think that that on its own allows for that issue of trust to kind of go out the window because everybody is an adult, everybody manages their own time differently. But at the end of the day, if everybody is actually getting their work done, um, then I have no complaints at all. So uh, the number of hours matter very little. It's really all about the outcomes and what's actually being done. Sure. Um, so have you ever, in terms of um, having your own schedule and deciding when you work, have you ever experienced a sort of flip side to that? Or do you think because you're a very self-motivated person that comes naturally to you? Because I know that a lot of freelancers, for example, um, 
they'll go from being in a full-time job and then working for themselves and they think it's going to be really great and they're like oh I'll be able to you know go for lunch with a friend or do this that and the other and then they kind of end up finding it quite difficult to manage right I think for me uh I just do my best I think it's just balancing the fact that at the end of the day um we're all human you have to kind of figure out what your own priorities are Right now, I have uh, a little one now, which has changed everything. She's only six months, um, uh, and I'm spending a lot of time just getting that daddy-daughter time as much yeah. as I can. Um, so I get away from my desk to just have my little bit of snuggles, have my little bit of play. We dance, we sing, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And that's just a part of kind of my my life now. So yeah. um, I don't really feel like it's a, a challenge for me because if I, um, I just try to keep putting my time, my energy into everything that is a, a priority, which is family, friends, um, my little one, uh, everything related to my work and, and driving growth. Like I just do my best. And at the end of the day, um, I think that that's all any of us can do is you try to do your best and uh, it typically will, will work out. Yeah. And I really liked your recent blog post, how to make 2019 the year of productivity and not the year of busy. Um, right. And you say the idea of being busy has become a badge of honor rather than right. something to manage, which is so true because I feel like people, especially recent in recent years, it's kind of become almost like something to aspire to, to be really busy and stressed. But yeah. I think that points to something that's not quite right. You know, if, if yeah. you are like working constantly, there's a lack of efficiency or maybe you're just taking on too much and I like what you've just been saying because essentially you know we're all human and we're not machines and right exactly and I think one of the key pieces in that piece I talk about is the importance of recognizing that some things can be outsourced some things can be automated and I don't think that there's any issue with that there's we live in one of the most fascinating times where the world has become so small that you can get connected with people all over the world who are willing to do these tasks for you um, and you just have to pay right like you just yeah. have to be willing to spend a little bit of extra cash to have somebody on upwork manage a certain task for you to do some research and find the names of different contacts I think that that's where a lot of people make the mistake of thinking they need to do everything and that they can't get support they can't get help so um i would push people to uh, not be afraid to kind of outsource things to get assistance when they need it when i was uh first starting out in my career i recognized that i needed to optimize my time as best as possible and Mm -hmm. at the time it was a very big investment for how much money i was making per year but i made a conscious decision that i would not do my own laundry and i would actually pay for laundry service and Uh, That was to free up time so I could do um, projects on the side that to me would have a greater value than me folding clothes, me figuring out how to put the blacks with the whites in terms of the the wash and all that stuff. Um, So I think that we need to think about just our time differently, whether it's uh, in our personal life or our professional life, not being afraid to actually invest in getting our time back, because at the end of the day, that's all any of us have. Yes, completely agree. And I think, yeah, sometimes having a cleaner or something, even things that might feel like a bit of an extravagance, if you work out the ROI and what you could, right. the amount of money, for example, that you could earn doing an hour's work and what you would pay for a cleaner or a laundry person, it definitely works out for the better. Exactly. 
Definitely. And I think that's one of the other benefits of working in agencies early on. You get a better sense of like the value of your time because your your manager and your team will probably put a value on your hours and then you can start to think differently about how you're spending your time. So you can say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to be doing X, Y, and Z, that would have been worth X number of dollars in an agency context. What if I valued my time the same way as they do and I started to do those types of equations when I'm doing the laundry or I'm doing the dishes or I'm running around getting groceries, etc. Yeah, definitely. So you seem like someone who has a really good work-life balance and kind of a good attitude to taking time off work and spending time with your family. Um, but something I'm quite interested in exploring at the moment is obviously we hear a lot about the negative effects of social media um, on our kind of emotional, mental well-being um, and I think it's quite an interesting conflict you face if you work in social media, content marketing, right. and you're kind of online all the time. So yeah. what, how have you kind of dealt with that personally? Like, do you think you have a pretty good relationship with screens and you're able to switch off or is it something that you struggle with a bit? Yeah, it's definitely something that is a challenge mainly because it is our work and it, is, uh, it takes up so much of our, our day to day. Um, mm. So I wouldn't say that I necessarily um, have a challenge with um, escaping the screens, but more than anything, it's that um, screens are just a present reality in my life. I've always got my phone within arm's reach. My laptop comes with me if I am traveling. Um, like there's no question that I am oftentimes plugged in and wired into my devices. If anything, I'd say that the biggest challenge and the biggest problem that comes with this type of work isn't related to how much time I spend in front of the screen, it's how much time I don't spend actually being active and doing things. Um, mm. A lot of marketers, a lot of startups, anybody who typically works in this space, we live a very sedentary lifestyle yeah. in comparison to some of the more traditional jobs um, that would have been around 50, 60, 100 years ago. Um, that's causing a significant impact on health and well-being and probably our mental health as well. And I think that for me, my biggest challenge is pushing myself to actually get moving rather than always being sitting down, creating content, working, or even sitting down and playing with uh, my daughter type of thing. So it's really about just making time to move more than anything. Mm. Um, but I think it's a challenge that a lot of us face. Yeah. In this industry and in the, the information age, I think it's going to continue to be a challenge, um, which is why I don't have one, but I really need to spend some time thinking about how I'm going to set up a, a standing desk or some, some type of treadmill under my desk or something like that, <laughs> because it's a, it's a real problem that I think uh, I need to, I need to over, overcome. Yeah, no, I think all of us probably feel the same. And I, w I was thinking about this recently because I wrote a blog post on remote working activities that you can do with your team. And one of the right. things I was saying is um, when you think about it, there's probably a lot of work that you could do away from your screen. You know, right. like if you just yeah. maybe go for a walk or um, to think about some ideas or I really like writing things down on a pen and paper. Like I just find it kind of helps my ideas flow a bit more freely. But I yeah. guess sometimes that's quite hard to do, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier about managing a, re a remote team. It, right. It's quite hard like to have, if you need to be connected with people, to have an employee kind of go off and say, oh, well, I'm having a walk and thinking. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, yeah. For sure. And there's, yeah. yeah. 
it's definitely um, a tough part of the entire equation. What I always say to my team is like leverage, like everybody uses Slack on our team. Um, the status update on Slack is something that I think a lot of organizations underutilize. Um, mm. But I tell them like, don't be afraid to use your status and say that you are off working on a specific project, that you're brainstorming, et cetera, et cetera. Right now, mine says that I'm recording a podcast. So like all of those things you can communicate through your stat your status on Slack. And I think that as long as the culture recognizes that there's value in just thinking, then mm. one, that's a great type of company to be in, but also it's going to give you a better outcome and the ability to be flexible with where you think, which could be the gym. It could be in the, a lake going for a swim, maybe not in Canada anytime <laughs> soon, but uh, <laughs> you can do tons of different things. Yeah, so, um, and kind of related to this, um, I'm, I mean, I've been drawing on several of your blog posts in this interview, mainly because you always write about topics I'm really interested in. And if I scroll through your blog, I think like, hey, I've been puzzling over that exact thing recently. So right. how do you come up with ideas for your content? So I, I do read a lot. I have a lot of books. Some of them are not finished, um, but I've constantly have probably like three or four books on the go. And I take inspiration from a lot of uh, materials that I read, but I also spend a lot of time just talking to folks online, um, on Slack communities, via DM on Twitter, having conversations about things in the industry and then using that to kind of guide um the content that I create. Oftentimes, I will get an email from somebody who's going through a situation um, and I am looking for a blog post that I can send them to help them out with that situation. And then I don't have a blog post that I've written about it. So I go and create that blog post and I follow up with them. Uh, and it gives me the benefit of having my community and my people around me um, giving me ideas by simply asking me questions. So oftentimes it comes from the community, it comes from uh, genuinely being curious and constantly reading different content from um, a variety of different authors, but also uh, just having conversations with people um, about things that they're going through, that their teams are going through and learning. Sometimes I just create content also that is just curious to me. So for example, recently mm -hmm. I wrote a blog post about the Yelpification of B2B it's just some it's just an interesting trend to me where um these websites are showing up where it's kind of like yelp or TripAdvisor, but for SaaS companies uh, like yeah. g2 crowd and um clutch all of these different sites are just mind-blowing to me that we are going into a world where there's ratings and reviews for pretty much every service every product everything uh, mm. And that just interests me, so I wrote about it. Another trend that I wrote about that was just genuine interest was the rise of woke brands, which is this phenomenon where brands are now talking about politics, they're talking about issues in the real world, they're talking about things that bug them, that their audience would care about. Um, mm. We've seen that with Nike, we've seen it with Ben & Jerry's, most recently with Gillette. Mm. Um, so I create content about things that they're just genuinely interested in that I'm genuinely interested in because it gives me an opportunity to kind of fine tune my ideas and establish a hypothesis that I can kind of say, okay, this is my opinion on this topic. Okay, so yeah, you've got a very kind of audience, like your personal audience driven approach and just things that interest you. So a lot right. of um, companies and marketers, I think, focus on kind of a more technical idea generation approach. So they might focus more heavily on SEO. Is that right. something you also incorporate into your strategy? Yeah, so we definitely incorporate the SEO side when it's 
um, talking about B2B marketing and B2B in general. But again, sometimes we'll just do things because we're interested in it. So we wrote a blog post about B2B emojis and whether or not that makes sense. And that had nothing to do with keyword research. Yeah. I just wanted to think about it a little bit and figure out whether or not B2B brands should use emojis. Um, but on other times, we'll create blog posts like, um, LinkedIn statistics that everybody needs to know in 2019. That's a very mm-hmm. keyword-driven blog post that we developed based off of the fact that we know um, at the top of our funnel, people are looking for stats and information on LinkedIn. So we created an asset about that. We optimized the blog post to make sure that we're um, capturing the SERP. Um, and we just kind of, the featured snippet in the SERP, and then we kind of just developed that post solely with the purpose of ranking. Uh, so sometimes we do it with the technical lens, but sometimes we do it just for genuine curiosity. Yeah, okay, so that's cool. It's kind of a, a mix of a few different influences, really. It is, yeah, definitely. I think uh, what we typically do would pretty much be three three categories of types of content. Community-driven, where we're getting feedback from other people or we're watching what is being talked about in the community and we write a blog post about that. Um, SEO-driven, where we're going after a specific keyword and we're trying to rank for something. And then the last one would just be curiosity-driven, where we're creating content that is about something that we're curious about um, and we create something based off of our own curiosity. Cool, that sounds like a really solid strategy. Um, And I'd just love to go back to one of the blog posts you mentioned, the rise of weight brands, because I was actually going to ask you about that. So in this post, you take a look at the growing number of brands who are integrating some kind of corporate social responsibility into their marketing strategies. Um, And one of the points you made that I thought was really interesting, you said, when I look at the brands who have stood up for something without receiving massive backlash from both sides, it's the brands who don't create a marketing campaign around their actions and have injected cause-related efforts as a part of their DNA since the start. So people don't want brands that capitalise on a crisis with an ad. People want brands to take a stand against something and take a bit of a risk. So I think that's a really good point because while I'm all for brands standing by their values, I can't help, and their customers' values as well, I can't help but feel a bit cynical about certain campaigns I see with people kind of jumping on a social justice hashtag simply to kind of capitalise on millennial wallets. Um, Exactly. So it can feel a bit insincere. So what would your advice be to people who want to build businesses aligned with their and their customers' belief systems but without coming across as pulling a cheap marketing trick? I think it has to start from the top down and it has to start from day one. Like you, mm-hmm. I think that there's, or you make a consistent effort to shift your approach to business um, and you are consistent with it. Like it's not just a, an ad that preaches about X, Y, and Z one time. You need to be willing to embrace that message 365 days a year uh, with, with consistent content reinforcing that value, but also actions and money going towards the cause that you're preaching about. So um, Ben and Jerry's is an example prior to their acquisition uh, that had in their DNA the idea of being very social responsible. Uh, And they've lived that. They've donated hundreds of thousands of dollars to LGBTQ rights. They've donated um, thousands of dollars to Black Lives Matter, and they've consistently done things of that nature. Mm. Um, throughout the course of their company. So you can't really get mad when Ben and Jerry's puts up an ad promoting one of their beliefs because it's who they are. But if a brand comes out of nowhere who has had a reputation for years of simply promoting 
using their product because it's better than the competitors and it, it, they don't really care about the environment they don't really care about um human rights they didn't care about any of that and then they come out with an ad that is essentially just preaching to the masses about why they should think a certain way they're going to be met with a lot of backlash because people are going to see right through it so i think it starts with coming um with it starting at the beginning and then consistently reinforcing that message through your values, through your team, through your culture, and with also through your communications. But then I think if you are a brand that has already established yourself and you already exist, it means you don't come out with a huge campaign to announce your position. You start to do incremental things that will um, add value to the cause that you're trying to support. And then over time, you're able to kind of um, come up with a big announcement or a big um, campaign that is promoting your idea uh, on a certain topic. Sure. So what did you think of the Gillette campaign? I think that it didn't work. I think it worked for, I think so. It's a great example of a campaign that came out of nowhere. Um, I think that if Gillette for years had been going this route, it would be an amazing win for them. I think that the messaging resonated with a significant amount of people, but I think that the backlash that they received, in my view, is less of uh, the actual material and more around like their actual implementation. Yeah. Um, I think that their um, their implementation moving forward needs to consistently reinforce the story. Like if they want mm-hmm. this to be a success for them, they can't back out of it. Like they need to embrace it they need to continue to tell this story they need to continue to tackle um this topic and if they don't then they're going to have people pointing their fingers saying like what was that all about because yeah. everybody knows that png who owns them also owns axe so it's kind of weird that they're all in the same host where axe has their weird commercials and then they have this toxic masculinity yeah. commercial like it's it's very interesting in that sense um i think that the creative and the messaging was great i think that the story was great i think that the brand um history associated with gillette doesn't make it very easy for them to have that message come across without offending a significant portion of the public which i think they could have done if they were to say we're investing x number of dollars into this type of charity and they did that without the campaign and then they rolled out the campaign later on Um, I think they have to they should have built up um, with action before they came out with kind of the message Sure. what are your thoughts on the campaign what did you think of it I, I agree with exactly what you're saying, actually. Like, I re- it was a really good ad, but obviously it's understandable why there's a backlash because there's that lack of consistency, which you've just been talking about with their brand. Right. But I think you're right. Like, it's kind of crucial where they go from here and whether they continue to do that. And if, if they do, then obviously more people kind of come around to them and support them. But... And I think it can work for them. Like, I think if one of my favorite campaigns of all times was the Old Spice Guy, and one of the key insights that the Old Spice Guy understood when they rolled out that campaign was that the buyer is very very unlikely to actually be the male when it comes to those types of products. It's typically the female in the house. Um, So what's interesting is that that messaging may have ticked off a bunch of guys, but if their wives are buying the products and their wives love the ad campaign, it's a success because exactly. the ones are going to pick up the Gillette products because they, they like Gillette, um, and it doesn't matter how fragile they may be, but like it's not gonna it's not gonna happen. Sure. Um. So I'm afraid we've got to kind of 
bring this interview to a close, but one question that I'd really like to ask you finally is if you could tell marketers to stop, either stop doing something or start doing something in 2019, what would it be? So I would say the number one thing that I would recommend for marketers to start doing um, is experiment. I think it's something that a lot of organizations get a, a little bit afraid of, um, but I think experimenting in 2019 is key. Whether you're experimenting with the topic that you're covering, whether you experiment with a channel, whether you experiment with a new project, whether you experiment with a new type of story that you want to associate with your brand, I strongly recommend that organizations and marketers in general spend more time experimenting. I think that it's something that will uh, give you the ability to have a culture internally that never goes stale and always is pushing the envelope to learn new things. Uh, and as a result of that, you will discover things that your competitors haven't discovered because they're too busy sitting on their laurels. And as a result of that, you'll be able to get a competitive advantage ahead of them and really start to create um, a sustainable um, advantage that can take you into 2020, 2021 and beyond. Sure, yeah, I think it, especially if you're kind of a successful business, it can be easy to get a bit complacent. So that's good advice to always experiment. Um, and finally, where can our listeners find you on social media and anywhere else that you want to plug? Definitely. So the, the best place to find me is rawsignals.com. Uh, that's my blog. That's my personal website. But also don't forget to check me out on Twitter. Um, I'm on all of the various social media channels. Very easy to find if you just type in Ross Simmons. Um, but also check out the foundation blog, foundationinc.co, uh, where we're constantly delivering content on B2B marketing and growth strategies that can help um, B2B organizations scale. So um, that's that would be pretty much it. I think I covered all the, the various networks and channels where people can find. enjoyed this episode of conversations with q we'll be back next week with another very special guest and in the meantime we'd love to hear your feedback so please do rate review and subscribe to our podcast on itunes